Hey all, thanks for checking out On The Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. The show you're listening to is 100% fan-supported, so if you do enjoy today's episode and you want to help us keep making them, check out patreon.com slash Joshua C. Liston. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Joshua C. Liston. And as we like to say around here, a share is as good as a dollar. So even if you can't support us financially, which we completely understand given the state of the world at the moment, we definitely appreciate a little sherry share on social media just as much. So thanks again, and now on with the episode. So I'm here with G. Walter Bush, who is the author of Unpacking Chuck and more recently Unpacking Chuck 2.0. And Unpacking Chuck has been described, I guess, as a literary analysis of the show Chuck with a particularly unique take, I guess, on the visual elements of the show. And as someone who has read now both versions, I can tell you it's actually a lot more than that. And it gives you a whole different perspective on a show I think a lot of us out there really loved, but maybe didn't quite understand has a depth to it that maybe a lot of us didn't see. So, Walter, did you want to just give us the full and expanded version on yourself if I've missed anything there and maybe tell us a little bit how people react to Unpacking Chuck and the things that you hear about your work? That would be pretty awesome. All right. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I became interested in Unpacking Chuck, uh, actually the the series Chuck. Uh, I became interested in writing Unpacking Chuck when I dropped in and watched my teenage son watching the show on Netflix, I never did watch the show when it was on its broadcast schedule on NBC. And what intrigued me about the show was not just the quality of the acting and the script, but I also saw a lot going on in what I would call the subtext, uh, the visuals of what was going on on the screen, and it reminded me a great deal of my research on Blade Runner, uh, which I had done as part of my master's thesis in literature. And so I saw things going on in the text, and I will refer to the the show as a text. It's an audiovisual text uh, that uh, you have to really look closely for to see. And in fact, if you're not looking for it, you may not see it. Uh, but I became intrigued basically by the depth of the text and how it was largely coherent over all five seasons, which was no small feat for a show that had uh, all kinds of issues from season to season, knowing they were even going to have another season and having to combine all those different other factors in the making of the text. That's pretty much perfectly put. And I guess as a fan of your work and obviously of the show, Chuck, when I first went into reading Unpacking Chuck, as someone who already loved the show, I didn't really think that having such a deep analysis of the show could really add much to what I thought of the show. And I'm sure other fans of your work and of the show have told you that, but it let me allowed me at least to see so many other things that were consistent about the show when inconsistency was one of the things I think that had the show on the bubble, so to speak. And... From your perspective, what do you think was going through, I guess, the minds of the writers when they were thinking, we want to really stick to having this great depth there? Do you think that might have been in contradiction at times to making the show more appealing? 
know that's a bit of an out of the blue question, but well, I think that for the first three seasons, there was a lot of the will they won't they, and I think that played a lot into their thinking and the writing of the script. And I think for the first two seasons, I think the will they won't they was very valid and very legitimate because it played on factors that were ultimately outside the control of the main characters, Sarah and Chuck. And because of that, it was a bit more, had a more realistic feel to it because they were in what I would call the Egyptian captivity of the uh, handler asset protocol. And uh, as we saw from the later series and in season two, I mean, Sarah was a great risk to cross that line professionally. And uh, she would be replaced, as you recall, in one episode uh, until General Beckman saw that that was actually an asset to the asset. But uh, I think it's important uh, to see that a lot of the will they won't they was based on Sarah's character, which I would characterize as being a fish out of water. Uh, in the second chapter of the first book, I go into great detail about how she is portrayed through the imagery and through the script uh, as a fish out of water in that scene where she has her fight uh, with the ninja-like friend. Um, and it's it's really, I think, her battling with her fear and her about to step into the shower, which is a baptismal image. But while feeling the water, she does see this intruder in the bathroom, and then she comes away from there. And she's not ready in season one to step into the shower of change, if you will. And that's why all the way through the end of season one and through most of season two, you don't have that there because there's all kinds of fears within Sarah. Uh, as we find out later in the series, through a lot of backstory telling, we see that she was never taught to trust other people. There were all kinds of issues professionally and personally uh, to take the risk of showing and admitting her feelings even to herself. I think even in episodes like Crown Vic, which can be extremely confusing for the viewer, where we see that she has just said no to running away with Bryce Larkin and is even then, you know, tomahawking her clock across the room with a knife um, and is treating Chuck in a very poor fashion. You don't really understand what's going on there until you see that she is losing control of her own emotions. Uh, she is probably... Uh, upset about this loss of control. She's never felt these uh, feelings. She's like a stranger in a strange land. And she is really reacting to some deep things that are beginning to change within her that she's not quite ready to admit even to herself. So there's some complex psychology there, I think, going on. Uh, and this continues all the way up until the end of season one, uh, when he's about to be bunkered and she comes to realize, and I kind of, you know, jokingly tell people, I think that there's a clarification by crisis is how Sarah works. And so she, uh, she only understands, is willing to admit to herself the depth of her feelings when Chuck is about to be gone forever. Uh, and then, you know, when he breaks up with her at the beginning of season two under perhaps false pretenses and pressure from Bryce Larkin to protect her and himself, and we go on, there's still this handler asset protocol issue that's all the way through uh, the, uh, um, is it the R49B or the 49B it is. And later on, you know, we see that that was very real 
there was all this documentation going on regarding her relationship with him. She was in a fishbowl. He was mm-hmm. in a fishbowl. And if they were going to have any chance of the future together, they had to toe the line. So there's all that legitimate barrier between them, this this Egyptian captivity, as I said, of has, asset pro, uh, handler protocol. But then when you get into season three and now Chuck's becoming a spy, in uh, my first book, I make the case that I feel that Sarah descends a bit into irrationality when the red test becomes this thing that keeps them separate from one another. Of course, I embed this into a larger context, which is a wandering in the wilderness. You know, if you're following the Old Testament template, you've got this Egyptian captivity followed by a nocturnal escape to the desert, which is Barstow, California in this case. And uh, then you have this wandering in the wilderness, and I even joke in the book, it only seems like 40 years uh, that they are wandering there. But you can redeem this element of the show if you're looking at it from a larger perspective of this Old Testament template that is being placed over this relationship in which the male lead is someone who's shepherding a flock of nerd herders at the nerd herd desk at the Bymore, who ends up marrying a wife named Sarah and is chosen to receive the intersect. All of these things play into the Abrahamic covenant of the Old Testament, and as does the red test, uh, which of course is the uh, having to kill the mole. Uh, which is a reconfiguration of the crossing of the Red Sea, and they do pass through those waters together ultimately. And uh, there's also the golden mask, uh, which is likened to the golden calf and the idolatry in which both Chuck and Sarah redirect their devotion to one another to other people, namely Hannah and Shaw. Uh, not long after, of course, in the previous season, he had given her the charm bracelet which was a declaration of his love for her as his real girlfriend. So all these things play out together in season three, even up to the point where they cross into the promised land over a river, which is the bridge, of course, over the uh, the, the Paris River, which is escaping at the moment. And uh, we see there that they are entering the promised land of this relationship finally at the end of season three. So. All the way through seasons one through three, you've got this will they, won't they. Uh, The first two seasons, I think viewers saw it as a legitimate barrier between them. But somewhere along the way in season three, though, I think most people can understand, yes, Sarah is beginning to become concerned about the changes in Chuck. Yes, Chuck is perhaps taking his relationship with Sarah somewhat lightly in choosing the spy life over Sarah. But at the same time, it was going to be a life on the run. What kind of a life was that going to be? Uh, was it going to be a real life? Uh, you could debate all over about that. Uh, but ultimately, what kept them apart for much of season three was this idea of the red test and Sarah thinking she's going to be more comfortable with being someone who's the uh, even more so like the Chuck she doesn't want him to become than Chuck already is. And the, the chapter, I think, 12 it is of the first book, uh, Wandering in the Promised Land, makes the case that this is a Sarah that viewers don't really recognize. So I think in season three, 
though ultimately it fits in the template of wandering in the wilderness, they finally do exit the wilderness. I think the wilderness is a great metaphor to use for where Sarah is in her existential crisis during the first half of season three. Yeah, those are all incredibly on point. And I think just to bring it back to maybe more of the fan perspective, I know around season two, because for the sake of On The Bubble podcast, I've gone back and I've been trying to make a timeline in my own head of what was the fans' feelings about the progression of their relationship. It seemed like the writers were trying to tell us subconsciously that Chuck always doubted that Sarah could ever truly love a nice guy over a warrior. And in the back of his mind, maybe that led him to make some of those choices that she already loves me, but maybe if I'm a hero and I become a real spy, that might really comfort her to the nth degree. She might be completely comfortable if she knows that I am also a warrior. But the vibe of a lot of the communities online was that there were times when Sarah's backstory was being rolled out more slowly than her irrationality in the present. And there were things that over the course of all of the seasons that you came to understand about her behaviour that made less sense as the episodes were rolling out. Is that something that maybe you noticed yourself or have heard that Sarah's character is much deeper across five seasons than what it seemed in any one episode? Yes, and that's why in Chapter 2, Fish Out of Water, when I really delve into Sarah's character, I have to go to Seasons 4 and 5 Chuck, you're my home. You always have been. Yeah. Uh, talking even to uh, Chuck and keeping secrets about, uh, remember, the baby. And she says, it's all I've ever known. It's what my dad taught me. It's what the CIA taught me. I think the readers really benefit from a retrospective view of Sarah through the backstories that come in season four and five. And that's why it does lend more confusion to the first two seasons. So I think that's a a very important point. But I would add one more thing to what you just said as far as whether or not Chuck is doing what he's doing, thinking that that will make him more appealing to Sarah. I think that exposes one of the most fundamental problems of their relationship, and that's a lack of communication. Um, and, And, you know, Sarah is made a mysterious character in this show because she doesn't reveal her feelings in a verbal way. In fact, most of the viewers understand her feelings for Chuck only when Chuck is not present and the camera is conveying her expressions. Uh, It's conveying her behavior when he is not around, and so he's not aware of it that the viewer is. And that's where I really think that Yvonne Strahovski played a very strong character Because Sarah's character relies on nonverbal cues for much of the first three seasons. And I thought that she did a very good job of playing that line of keeping you not entirely sure, but giving you enough to lead you to believe that she has deeper feelings for him than her behavior on the surface is showing. And I guess it was probably around the middle of season two that the economics behind the show, whether that's ratings and all of those things, started to come into light that as great as this show is and as well-written as it is, there's a worry that it might be 
on the bubble soon, and then it ended up being on the bubble. And I guess Chuck as a show has had one of the more interesting and wide-ranging fan appeals of any show that I've been able to find so far in my research, even to the point where, as far as I can tell early on in my journey, it is the only show that's actually ever been renewed beyond one extra season after being saved by the fans. I guess, Walter, what do you think it was about Chuck, even for people that have maybe only ever experienced a show on a more, I hate to use the term, surface level, but less deeply than maybe what you've exposed to me through your writing, what do you think it was about those characters and the show itself that made people fight so hard and mobilise themselves to get, or at least to try to keep Chuck on the air and keep the show rolling? Well, of course, my response is speculation, uh, yeah, but I fine. do have <laughs> some, some speculative thoughts on it. Uh, I think in one regard, Chuck was kind of an everyman. He is a character that is a nerd. He's a character that won't even call Sarah back at the beginning of the show in the pilot. Because when Morgan says, are you going to call her? He says, are you kidding? Did you just look at her? Did you see her? You know? Yeah. Uh, he's just convinced that Sarah is completely out of his league. So I think, A, he is an everyman that the average person can relate to. Um, but also, I think most viewers like an underdog. And Chuck was the ultimate underdog in attaining Sarah Walker, right? Um, and I think that, you know, there's some level of fantasy fulfillment going on there. And so I think that is one element of what it is. I think another element is that the show really does emphasize in a few different ways the theme of loyalty and commitment. You look at Chuck's relationship with Morgan, you know, the loyalty that they have for one another is extraordinary. And I think that that is something that fans respond to as they're looking, you know, for that kind of a, of a, of a virtue. And then you look at even the, the three of Sarah and Chuck and Casey even, and in each of those relationships, and of course, with Chuck and Sarah, ultimately becoming engaged, ultimately getting married, et cetera, et cetera. And you even see Chuck's at the end, of course, this is well beyond the campaign, but saying, I'm here for you. I don't want anything from you in the finale. Uh, I just want to be here for whatever you need. We saw a long way, even look at Ellie and Awesome, look at their relationship as they grow more and more committed to one another. You can look at Jeff and Lester, even in season five, you know, and even before that, you know, the, their relationship is a tad more on the bizarre side. <laughs> they, they have a, a fundamental commitment to one another, right? And so I think that that loyalty, that commitment, whether it be in friendship, whether it be in marriage, I think that lended itself to a very loyal and committed fan base that wanted, you know, they were they, that resonated with them. And one way they expressed that was through showing loyalty and commitment to the show and doing everything they could to keep it on the air. Yeah, that's very true. And also, speculating, I feel that one thing that Chuck did that not a lot of other shows that I can think of off the top of my head did was they took the risk in the early seasons of, and it's something that I would refer back to maybe something Joss Whedon would do in Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Firefly, where he took 
a risk and really fleshed out all of the core characters early instead of waiting. There are times when Sarah and Chuck's relationship seemed to be stagnating or be confusing, but there was always something you could care about that was happening to more than just the central two characters. And when the fan campaign kicked in, it was about saving all of those characters and that whole world, not just there are other shows where it really is just about the main relationship and two people hooking up or getting together eventually. And I don't know if those type of shows engender the same reaction from fans. But when you've got five or six core characters and everyone cares about all of them, it really makes it hard to just let them go without a fight. You know, you make an interesting point because when I finish with 1.0, if you read in the preface, I made it very clear this is a selective literary analysis. Yeah. It's it's very Chara, Chuck and Sarah-centric, right? <laughs> yes, I do also have some characters, uh, some three chapters on Casey, okay? Uh, but for the most part, it was the central three characters were the focus of it. And the others, you know, yeah, there was a chapter on Morgan, there was a chapter on Ellie. And when I saw the response to the first book and I thought, you know, wow, maybe I need to go back and, and take a second look at the rest of it. Cause there's a lot that hasn't been written about here. Right. And when I started getting the other characters and I saw how much development there was in each one of them and how much growth there was in each one of them, I talked a little bit about the growth of Casey in the first one, actually a lot about it. And about also Morgan, but, you know, Jeff and Lester and Big Mike and Beckman uh, and Awesome, all of these characters showed growth. And, of course, you have Volkoff as well, right? But he shows some growth. And at the end of the second uh, book, I make the case that basically every single person, including villains, show growth in this story except for Shaw. Uh, and it's really remarkable. I mean, even Heather Chandler shows growth, right? And so I think that you're onto something there in that the fans saw more than just one relationship. They saw growth across the board. Now, with Jeff and Lester, that growth came very late, and that might have been spurred by the fact that they knew this was the last season, and so we're done. So we will have them reach flames of destiny, <laughs> you know, at the end of season five. Yeah. Uh, but but every other, you know, every other character shows growth. And I would even argue that there are signs, little signs of growth within Jeff and Lester, at least within their relationship with each other along the way. So I do think, and I would agree with you, that this is not a show that is just about Chuck and Sarah. This is a show that from even the somewhat insignificant Bymore character to perhaps, you know, the worst, one of the worst of villains, you're seeing growth across the board. One character that really jumps to mind that maybe hits your point on the head there is I don't think that anyone would have thought if you just read a small synopsis of what Awesome's character was going to be and that at one point he was meant to basically not be on the show anymore after I think it might have only been half a dozen episodes. The fan reaction even to that rumour that Ellie's husband wasn't going to be on the show anymore who is maybe... You know, he's a jockey, sporty, super successful doctor person, probably the antithesis of what Chuck is, that people would love him so much because of how well-written he was as a character. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Excellent. So I don't want to keep you all day, mate. Is there anything maybe that you wanted to say about your own work and what's coming out soon? I think you might be working on a another, is it an episode by episode kind of breakdown, literary analysis of Chuck, or am I off base there? I have no plans at the moment to do any more writing on Chuck. I'm really just sitting back and waiting to see how well uh, the 2.0 does. Yep. What I found to be rather intriguing is that since the 2.0 has come out, I've been selling more copies of the first book than the second book. <laughs> uh, so the second book is clearly driving the first book. And I'm going to be curious to see when the second book starts catching up with the first book. Um, but ultimately, the question is, and I've asked myself this question because I've actually had a couple of months now to actually stop writing and take a deep breath. Uh, because the writing process is one that's very intense and takes about a six-month period of time with all the research and all the drafting, etc. Is there anything else to write about? And the answer is, when I started writing the 2.0, I didn't really know if there would be enough for a second book. And I was, as I even say in the preface to the second book, I was pleasantly surprised. In fact, I would say as you know, very categorically, that the second book is just as deep as the first book. It's just a different set of characters. Yeah. Uh, and there was plenty there to write about. I do think that the majority of the text has been mined, and I don't think it has all been mined. The question is, is there really enough to write another book about? And I don't know the answer to that, but if the response to the second book is like the response to the first book, I certainly would be willing to think about it and to look a bit deeper And maybe a third book, if there was to be a third book, would be something that would be not only a literary analysis, an objective look at the uh, show, but maybe there would be some chapters in which I actually build a distant commentary. Uh, As you may know, because you've read both books, the only chapter of commentary that I've written so far is the final chapter of the second book, which is what does a Chuck movie perhaps look like if you're wanting to complete the text? Because I argue from a literary analysis point of view that the show did not complete the text based on the Old Testament template, along with a couple of other things that I do add in, I think are significant in the last chapter. Uh, So there is a commentary chapter in the second book, but I would probably, if I wrote a third book, it would be something where there would be a bit more commentary. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure what it would be about, but I guarantee you I would not write a third book if I didn't feel like it could stand with the first two. Excellent. And I guess my fans would probably be a little angry if I didn't ask you a little bit more about that chapter on the movie, because I think that if the Firefly to Serenity or the Farscape journey from TV show to movie was kind of the pinnacle of, I guess, what you can get out of a fan campaign. What was just your general feeling on the movie? Would you like to see the movie? Obviously, you feel that it hasn't been completely resolved, the story. And is there anything quickly you can say about what you would see in the movie as being some important resolutions there in your own mind? Well, I think you need to finish the Old Testament Abrahamic Covenant in which the Abrahamic Covenant was that Abraham would become a great nation and that he would be a blessing to other nations. At the end of the show, we're not totally sure that they are together, Chuck and Sarah, though 
as I argue at the end of the first book, I believe that they are. Uh, but we're not really sure what kind of a future they have. We certainly don't know for sure it's going to be a prosperous one. Uh, so that would be one major element that would be part of a Chuck movie, I would urge. The other is that in the second book, I had the first two chapters on the intersect. And at the end, we see that Chuck is trying to get rid of the intersect. He sees it as a device that has more destructive capability than helpful. And at the end, the irony of ironies, he still has the intersect in his head, the very thing he tried to destroy, yeah. uh, the very thing he wanted to get rid of. So you're left with a dilemma of, well, he never did destroy it. And so what is the end of that story? We, we don't really know. And so a Chuck movie would give the ability for the creators to either show he changes his mind and comes to some mid-view of it, or he has the successful ability to get rid of it, or whatever they're going to do with it. But that's another unfinished theme. Then I would also point to Jeffster. Uh, Jeffster, as a uh, pair, uh, were doing cover songs, but I argue that that was really a metaphor for the things in their lives that were covering up their real abilities, uh, and by the end of season five, they have both broken through to epiphanies and have gone through fundamental changes. I would love to see them going on a world tour <laughs> where they actually start playing some of the original music uh, and maybe their first single, which would be metaphorically significant given the newness of their identities. So there's three things. and There's a few more. I mean, I'd like to see a little bit more of what was going on between Orion and Bryce Larkin. You could do some video logs to bring them into it. So we have a little bit more understanding of, of what was going on behind the scenes secretly uh, in their relationship. Uh, those kinds of things, I think, would all be helpful in the Chuck movie. Excellent. And it's going to seem a little obscure as a reference, but my big question for Chuck that I think was unresolved was, what was it about Chuck's brain as a child that allowed him to absorb that really, really early intersect and actually be able to function? What was it about that particular person? Because I think that the way the show was written was almost like Chuck obviously was the right person, but he didn't seem like it was he was the perfect person that could have it because obviously Bryce was meant to have it or whoever, a more skilled warrior. What was it about Chuck as a child that made him the only person that it was rightful. And that's something that carried me through most of that whole part of the story arc was waiting to, for that question to be answered. So I know that's a little obscure, but... Well, I I think that I don't often like to point out what I feel are inconsistencies because, as you pointed out, with it always on the chopping block, I think it's quite remarkable that the text is as consistent as it is, okay? Um in fact, I read some things about some of the writers on some of the teams wanting to quit when they heard there was another season because they had already just tried to wrap everything up, right? Uh, and so now <laughs> we've got to somehow extend it again, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to point out and put in the context that they had a very difficult context in which to write. But I would say that on the issue of the intersect, at the first couple of seasons, it's made out to be something that literally can kill you. I mean, look at the secret agent in the suburbs uh, who downloaded the fulcrum intersect, right? And becomes a raving lunatic, right? Yeah. And, and you know, he, we presume he dies. We don't know what happens to him. And so that reinforces the fact that Chuck is unique. We see in the Stanford test results that 
the professor uh, wants to use to bring him into the CIA, that he had the highest score of anybody on the uh, image recognition, you know, stuff going on there. And so the first couple of seasons really highlight the uniqueness of Chuck and how he's different and everyone's in awe of him. And what makes him that way? I I honestly don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that later in the season, and just about everybody gets the intersect. You have Morgan getting the intersect. You've got Sarah getting the intersect. You've got Manoush doing the intersect. You've got Shaw doing the intersect. I mean, it goes from person to person to person, and nobody seems to ever be in danger of going crazy, though, of course, we got the mind melt of Morgan, but that was something that Decker did to the program, right, to cause that to happen. It it seems like the uniqueness of the intersect is lost as they give it to all these other people, and it makes you go back and wonder what was so unique about Chuck in the end. Uh, So that doesn't change the fact that it was intriguing in the early seasons, because you didn't know all that was going to happen later on. But I'm left as a viewer wondering why was Chuck so unique in the end if everybody else had the intersect too later? When it comes to fan campaigns and driving that kind of mobilization from fans, if there aren't some open-ended questions for people to mine over even years later, we probably wouldn't be going back and doing literary analysis or me starting a show about it, about the fan campaigns. Because I think if everything gets tightened up into a nice little bow, there isn't much to drive fans to want more, maybe. I, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Okay, Walter, well, I just wanted to say thank you for your amazing analysis of the show through your books and for joining me today and just for making the time. And also, obviously, it's a little bit more complicated given, given I'm in Australia and Walter is in California, that it's, uh, I'm assuming California, <laughs> that it's... Uh, yeah that it's pretty difficult to get these things to happen. So I just wanted to say thank you for freeing up some time for me and for joining on the Bubble Podcast with your great analysis. And hopefully we can speak again in the future, maybe less formally. That would be great. (laughs) The pleasure and privilege is all mine. Thank you. Excellent. So did you just want to leave us with where people can find the books, what they need to maybe search for on Amazon, and for people that are listening to a podcast, if there's any plans for an audible version at any point? Uh, at this moment, the answer is no, uh, but I would never say never. So I guess for anyone who's listening, if you love Unpacking Chuck and you wouldn't mind an audio version, you might have to go and buy a few more copies of each one. I really appreciate that feedback. I, you know, Selling books is great, but hearing from people who are thinking people and realizing that you succeeded in making people think and that what you thought wasn't totally outlandish, that's a great reward.